And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jennifer Medina. Jennifer Medina is a national correspondent for the New York Times, based in Los Angeles and covering Southern California and Nevada. Since joining the Bureau in late 2010, she's focused on the uneven economic recovery, immigration, prisons, and education, in addition to covering sundry news events and mayhem. Born in Riverside, she graduated from USC with a degree in print journalism and political science. Please give a very warm welcome to Jenny Medina. Thank you. I'd like to introduce our real star of the evening, Harold Meyerson. Harold is currently an editor-at-large for American Prospect and a weekly Washington Post op-ed columnist. From 1989 to 2001, he was the executive editor of LA Weekly. And from 1991 through 1995, he hosted the week the weekly show Real Politics on KCRW. He's also written on politics, labor, the economy, foreign policy, and American culture in publications including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New Republic, The New York Times, and The LA Times. So thank you for coming tonight. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Old home week. I just want to start by uh, questioning the premise of this title, which I assume that you did not come up with. And I, I don't write the headlines for any of my pieces <laughs> either. I, just, I always use that excuse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So first of all, do you accept the premise that labor is in decline and that labor is really on the left and that the left really relies on labor for power? Uh, a lot of premises. Uh, yes, labor is absolutely in decline. Uh, when I was a little kid growing up in L.A. in the 1950s, about one out of three American workers belonged to unions. And uh, even those who did not belong to unions were beneficiaries of this relatively high-level of unionization. There's a Princeton economist who has demonstrated that if you, in that time period, if you worked in a non-union place, but if you were in an industry that was like at least 25% unionized, your wages were about 8% higher than someone who worked in a non-union place in a completely non-union industry. So it provided an upward escalator. And the one period of union strength in, in the United States, which is more or less the three decades after World War II, coincides with the one period of broadly shared prosperity in the United States, which is not a, not a coincidence. Uh, that's what unions do for all of their flaws, uh, and that's what they did then. And then as they grew weaker, uh, the middle class has waned uh, alongside it. It's by no means is the decline of unions the only factor here. There's a slew of other reasons, too. Uh, mechanization, uh, globalization, but it's a major factor, particularly since you know, most American workers are not in jobs where they're in competition with Chinese workers. Certainly, the people who drive trucks, the people who build buildings, the people who teach our kids, uh, all of these folks are, are not in the global economy, yet their wages have been stagnant or worse uh, in recent years. So these days, labor is down to representing uh, about 30% of public sector workers and only 6.6% of private sector workers. Uh, they're weak, and at this week's AFL-CIO convention, uh, they acknowledge that. Uh, they, they, Rich Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO, said, uh, you know, we represent just a small, relatively small number of the 150 million Americans who uh, are in the, uh, in the workforce in the United States. So yes, they're weaker. What were the other premises you and wanted me the, to talk about? Is the, does the left really rely on labor? Uh, well, it depends how you define left. But I, 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 left. I, I think uh, labor uh, in, in the post-1945 period uh, certainly for a number of decades could be described as sort of the anchor tenant in the house of, of post-war liberalism. We just went through the uh, 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, uh, for which the UAW and the ILGWU paid for the buses. The UAW paid for the sound system. Uh, Walter Ruther was one of the 10 speakers on the, uh, on the program, one of the, uh, the legendary president of the United Auto Workers. And during Ruther's time at the United Auto Workers, the UAW not only you know, provided funding for King, for the SCLC, uh, but also for uh, Cesar Chavez's efforts uh, to start up the United Farm Workers, uh, uh, gave some aid to this little student organization in the early 60s, Students for a Democratic Society, uh, and uh, actually provided some funding for the uh, National Organization for Women as it was being founded, and the first Earth Day 
Um, so uh, that's then. But even today, labor uh, is actually uh, key to uh, funding and providing some coordination to a slew of liberal events. Uh, the huge marches over the last five years here in Los Angeles for immigration reform, uh, I, I, a lot of the coordination was done by uh, the Service Employees International Union uh, and the LA County Federation of Labor. There's a, as people here I, I'm sure know, a particularly uh, close relationship between the labor movement in Los Angeles, which in many ways has been Latino-led now for 15 years, uh, almost 20 years, and uh, the immigrant community here in Los Angeles. Uh, so I think there are lots of ways in which labor is, uh, remains essential both to the left and actually at election time to the Democrats. Uh, but one of the interesting things about this week's AFL-CIO convention is labor acknowledged that it had grown so small that it really couldn't accomplish many of its own goals uh, unless it had a closer relationship with community and other organizations. Larry Cohen, who is the president of the Communication Workers of America, said at one point, we can't even get a good contract for our members uh, unless we also have uh, you know, some mobilization of community support. So even on their most internal, essential, business, uh, they have grown so weak that, that they need that. I mean, when only 6.6% of American workers in the private sector are in unions, that essentially means there's no collective bargaining in the United States anymore because 93 point something percent of workers just, you know, it's off the table. And for the remaining 6.6%, they have no leverage. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, if, if, if there are 100 workers out there uh, who can uh, take your place, and if your employer is in competition with non-union employers, you have no leverage. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why, even during the ostensible recovery of the last four years, American workers' wages and median family income has continued to drop in this country. Isn't that acknowledging a pretty big defeat to kind of just throw yeah. up your hands and say, we can't organize anymore, we can't get contracts anymore? How is there a really a way out of that into, into any kind of real collective bargaining, which is what unions are supposed to do? Well, the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935, and it looked for a good long time that pretty much ensured unions' ability to organize workers, which they did. Uh, the great growth period in unions was the decade following the passage of, of, of that bill in 1935. Uh, but the bill had loopholes in it, and the bill was weak, and uh, uh, employers discovered at some point about 40 years ago that if you fired workers who were in an organizing campaign, yes, there was a financial penalty but it was negligible, and compared to you know, whatever the cost of raising all your workers' wages, it was, uh, <clears throat> the technical economic term is bupkis. There was really no, <laughs> uh, uh, no reason not to violate the law. Uh, now, labor has tried every time there has been a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress to get that law strengthened. They did try it under Lyndon Johnson, under Jimmy Carter, under Bill Clinton, under Barack Obama. And in all four cases, they got a bill, they got their bill through the Democratic House, but they never reached uh, enough to break a filibuster in the Senate. Uh, and so they have been facing that, and then the additional pressures of offshoring manufacturing jobs and whatnot have just led to uh, a continuing decline in uh, uh, in union membership. And then, you know, they've never really been able to organize in the South, uh, uh, which is a somewhat different, more anti-worker economy going back to, you know, I think there's a through line back to the unpleasantness before 1861. And uh, they have not really figured out how to do this. Uh, and what we saw at this week's convention was almost... Uh, a statement of, we, we really can't organize here, so we're going to bring pressure in other ways. We're going to bring in workers who aren't 
union members uh, who may be labeled as independent contractors, like cab drivers, taxi drivers, who have formed a group called the Taxi Drivers Alliance, uh, which, uh, you know, I mean, they actually work for Yellow Cab, but, you know, they can't form an actual union, but they can get together, they can post some demands, they can get some results outside of the context of the National Labor Relations Act. And the AFL-CIO uh, this week passed some resolutions saying we really want to welcome these guys in and we want to work with them. And does that have the, what does that have the potential to do? I mean, is it just simply an act of raging, raising people's wages? Is it an act of electing more Democrats? I mean, what's the, the sort of end goal? How do you prove that that strategy is successful? Well, labor is in a period of, uh, and it's about time, it should have been in this period 15 years ago, of let's do what we haven't done before because what we've been doing before hasn't been working for 30 years. Uh, and so they are uh, opening their ranks to the people who work in some ways on the fringes of the economy, domestic workers, for instance, and the Domestic Workers Alliance, a group that's uh, achieved some legislative victories in some state legislatures and may achieve one here, uh, we'll see, uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, the most interesting labor action in the country over the last three, four months has been the work stoppages of fast food workers, which has gone on uh, in, in over 50 cities. Uh, and this is sponsored by the Service Employees International Union. We've put a lot of money and uh, organizers on this, SEIU, as it is called, uh, which is not a member of the AFL-CIO. It's one of the two major unions that is not a member, uh, but uh, really virtually no programmatic differences. Uh, and SEIU really almost began this without a particular theory of how they would win gains for these workers. Uh, I don't think they, uh, the, the organizers behind it ever really thought they were going to get McDonald's to sit around a table and sign a contract. I mean, they, they couldn't do that. But they wanted to raise the issue of people working full-time for poverty wage uh, work. And I think they helped establish a climate simply by publicizing this. I mean, these work stoppages were more theatrical public publicizing than they actually, you know, were at all dysfunctional to fast food joints. Uh, simply by publicizing it, I think they created a climate which led to, which has led just in the last day or two, uh, to uh, what I think will be the enactment of a major increase in the minimum, minimum wage in America's largest state, this one. Uh, you know, I think the bill's going to uh, pass by tomorrow. They're, they're not sure what they can get. And, you know, even if they win this, this kind of victory, if they get living wage ordinances or municipal m minimum wage ordinances raised or get the minimum wage raised in, in states around, in states where there's uh, the liberal legislatures and governors uh, around the country, um, this is great. It doesn't really arrest the de numerical decline of unions. You're not getting any more dues-paying members out of this. But many of the unions have concluded that the name of the game right now, uh, they're still going to try to get dues-paying members, but if they want to actually do something that has some impact, it's so difficult to get new dues-paying members that they're just going to do uh, something like this. And we'll see where this goes. Um, it's not infinitely expandable because at some point they have to make up for the continuing uh, decline in their membership, but uh, it's what some of them are doing now. I want to talk to you about the minimum wage. So Jerry Brown has already said, Governor Brown has said, yes, I'm going to support. In fact, it was his statement yesterday that made it pass sale through the legislature, and now the minimum wage will be $10 an hour in California, which, as you said, will be the, the highest wage, minimum wage in the country. Uh, Two questions about that. I mean, first of all, if you live in L.A., $10 an hour, working 40 hours a week, still doesn't really get you out of poverty, even if it, even if it might by federal standards, which I don't think it does. No, it doesn't. You're still living a pretty uh, hand-to-mouth existence. So what difference does that make? Is that really lifting all, to lifting all boats? And, and I'll, I'll stop you there, but then... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Riel Andrasso said this week that this is real live class warfare. So how do you, I mean, first of all, do you agree that, that we're really in a time of real live class warfare? And now what? I think we've been in real live class warfare for uh, any number of years. I just think it's been one-sided and workers have been losing. Uh, <laughs> something like the... Uh, 
minimum wage increase is obviously inadequate. Uh, though in the context of what's politically possible, uh, it, it's hard to imagine uh, something going significantly higher than this. And you know, there's been a continual downscaling. I mean, if you ask me, the most serious and intractable problem in the nation, uh, in the nation it's, it, it's really the continual downscaling of, of wages. Uh, most in, 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 in manufacturing, uh, workers who've been there for a long time under a union contract uh, can make up to about 30 bucks an hour. Uh, but if you've been hired in the last decade, uh, there's probably a ceiling on what you can make. And you, you certainly can't go higher than about 19 bucks an hour. Uh, the average wage in the Midwest has uh, declined uh, to the point where the, the average wage in the Midwest and the average wage in the American South used to be about seven bucks uh, apart. Uh, the wage in the Midwest has come down to the point where they're now about three bucks apart. Uh, there's a, a kind of steady uh, decline of, of people's ability uh, to make money at jobs that used to pay somewhat decent wages. Uh, the minimum wage is obviously uh, pathetic, but it's very hard, again, in the absence of, of, of serious collective bargaining, uh, to get wages up there. And you know, this is, a pro this is the, the two-edged sword for uh, a company like Walmart, because on the one hand, that Walmart is devoted to keeping wages low. On the other hand, at a certain point, most of the people who shop at Walmart can't spend as much as Walmart would like them to spend. One of the few business leaders who really backed the New Deal and in some ways had a vision that prefigured that of the New Deal uh, was Edward Filene in the 1920s who owned Filene's department store and Filene's basement and other uh, department, federated department stores. And he was writing uh, back in the 20s that unless we, you know, pay workers more in this country, we're going to have a depression. And, uh, you know, th there's not going to be enough money to go around uh, to support retail. Well, he was right. And, you know, one of, the, one of the conundrums of our time is why could Edward Filene see in the 1920s what the Walton family cannot see in the, uh, uh, the 2000s, in the, in the 2010s? Uh, because they're, you know, if you look at the retail in this country, uh, the Neiman Marcuses and the Tiffany's are doing quite well. Uh, the Walmarts, the Targets, uh, and uh, companies like that are not doing that well. And so, what's the? What do you think is the answer there? I mean, how do you? Is there a real possibility of of ever changing the Walton's point of view of things? It seems like that would be Pollyannish to think so. Yeah, I, I, I would. That would surprise me. Uh, <laughs> that would surprise me if, if so, the Waltons change their mind. They're doing fine. The family, uh, the, the 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 children of Sam Walton, are worth something like, uh, God, it's it's uh, uh, many tens of billions of dollars. Uh, they're they're well off. Um, and so, what happens when you're electing Democrats? I mean, you talked about the importance of the labor for Democrats, but you're electing Democrats all over the country who are willing to bash labor. Um, I mean, even in LA, yeah. Mayor Garcetti got elected without the backing of the county fed. So, what happens then? Again, I just don't quite understand the uh, the the path or the map that labor's creating for itself. Well. Um, labor in some places can get some significant victories, and I still think it's going to do that in Los Angeles. I would uh, expect that a year from now, the city council will have passed at least the first part of a resolution which mandates uh, that all workers at hotels in Los Angeles with more than 100 rooms um, get 15 bucks an hour or more. And I would think that Eric Garcetti, who is not Scott Walker, who is not anti-union in that sense, uh, might well support this. And uh, I, I think Eric Garcetti was put in a peculiar box by the incongruity of Wendy Gruel's electoral coalition, which was the uh, more conservative San Fernando Valley, uh, which was, uh, and people like Richard Reardon, who are concerned about the cost of public employee pensions, 
and a very aggressive campaign waged on Wendy Gruel's behalf by a public sector union. Uh, and any political consultant would have told Eric, look, just publicize the union at the DWP and her base in the <laughs> valley is going to go fluey, which it did. They split the valley evenly in the election. Um, uh, I, I, you know, but uh, there is a tension, certainly, between governors and mayors on the one hand and municipal employees on the other hand. One of the ways in which LA is different, LA is anomalous, is that uh, in many cities, the image of unions is entirely you know, the public sector unions and uh, maybe some old industrial unions that have, are clearly dying and have been there forever. In LA, over the last 20 years, uh, there's been a, a sense that the working class in, this, in, this, in LA has become largely Latino. Uh, there have been some unions like the janitors who sort of began to symbolize the whole rise of immigrants politically and modestly economically in this city. And the labor movement was integral to that. And, and I think uh, anyone who saw the janitors marching down Wilshire Boulevard in 2000 uh, blocking traffic, but largely not pissing off LA motorists, which was unheard of. I speak as a lifelong <laughs> up until, I, I speak as someone who lived the first 50 years of his life here. Um, uh, knows that uh, the labor situation here is somewhat different. The election was was an anomaly, but you know the, the labor gets very frustrated at the Democrats. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, labor certainly wishes that uh, you know the, the, the sort of emerging model of the new Democrat and and perhaps. Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, who was soon to become the U.S. Senator from New Jersey, uh, personifies this best of someone who's very liberal on social non-economic issues, but hasn't been there at all on uh, issues of concern to economic working class issues very much. Um, I, I think this is a real, a real threat to labor. I mean, there have been inter-democratic party intra-democratic party tensions with labor on one side and other parts of the liberal community on the other going back to, uh, to Vietnam. Um, it, it's not so much on the cultural issues now. Uh, labor, the AFL-CIO opposed the Iraqi war almost from the start, which is unimaginable back in the days of George Meany. Uh, but but there, there, are, there are tensions there. Uh, and I, I think, though, that the uh, most liberal sense that the economy really is screwed up uh, has, you know, g still gives labor a, a foot in the, uh, in the liberal door. So one of the things that's pointed to as a big success here is the car wash, uh, the car wash arrows movement and unionizing the few... Um, the few places, there's a couple in Santa Monica, right. one closer to South LA. Is there any sense that any of that is replicable, even in LA, let alone elsewhere? I mean, is it just so much of an anomaly? I mean, again, that was some place where you had a pretty big coalition of not just unions, but um, people who were liberal on social issues. You got this, uh, as you wrote about, you got a coalition of clergy members to get in on that. but. There's still only, I think it's, it's certainly less than a handful. Yeah. There's a, an organization I profiled in the latest issue of the American Prospect, uh, the LA Alliance for a New Economy, which is more or less the organization that devised the whole living wage uh, ordinances and living wage movement, and which has done all kinds of things uh, in a very s wide and smart coalition of groups around LA uh, to lift certain wages here and certain wages there. Uh, and I, I think ultimately uh, may have affected wages uh, of about 60 to 70,000 workers in the LA area. But if you look at, you know, LA County as a whole is 10 million people. And, and this is an absolute success story. Uh, it, it's hard to see where any kind of mass upward mobility is going to come from. I, I should tell you that my girlfriend says I shouldn't have lunch with people because I depress them. <laughs> uh, I should have said that as sort of a warning at the start, but I just wanted to uh, uh, acknowledge that. And what about this whole notion that was talked about so much at the convention this week of uh, reaching out to other people? I mean, how much and and bringing them in in some sort of official way to have a voice in union politics? What's the 
Well, there, there are sort of two levels of this. One is opening the ranks of unions and the AFL-CIO to workers who aren't in recognized unions, uh, like the Taxi Drivers Alliance, like the Domestic Workers Alliance. That, that's pretty non-controversial. Um, at the edges, when you deal with day laborers, there are some construction unions that have a little bit of, uh, of angst mm -hmm. about that. But by and large, that, that's fairly non-controversial and necessary because, you know, like with the fast food workers, uh, uh, this is the most dynamic part of what's going on in, uh, in labor today, and there's no fast food workers union. Uh, in terms of reaching out to coalition partners, I mean, labor has long been allied with other parts of the liberal uh, coalition for years. Uh, I think what they're looking at is cementing uh, a, a deeper relationship and creating, say, an organization over here where the local labor council and the local Planned Parenthood and the National Organization for Women and the NAACP and CHURLA, the immigrant rights organization, all meet regularly and agree upon a common program and what they can do to advance it. Which is part of what already happens in LA. It is part of what already happens in LA. LA is ahead of the rest of the country by far <coughs> when it comes to uh, this sort of this sort of activity. Now, the president of the AFL-CIO, Rich Trumka, gave about half a dozen interviews before the convention, including to me, in which he not only said this, but, you know, we can bring the Sierra Club into our, our, our labor council, you know, which caused the building trades unions to have cardiac arrest. <laughs> uh, but I actually have uh, been thinking about this and was talking to some people. I, I think what Trumka was doing was deliberately going several bridges too far so that the reforms that were actually adopted at the AFL-CIO convention would seem relatively non-controversial by comparison. Uh, everyone can sit down uh, with uh, uh, the representatives from Planned Parenthood, let's say, and, and work out what they were doing on a political campaign uh, without actually putting Planned Parenthood on the board of the LA County Federation of Labor or putting representatives of the United Auto Workers on the board of Planned Parenthood, uh, or putting the NAACP on the board. I mean, you know, it, 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 he was, I think, deliberately uh, uh, going, uh, going a, little, a little too far. Just, But I should tell you, and I'd never seen this before at an AFL-CIO convention, and I've been going to these in one capacity or another, I shudder to think, since the 1980s. Uh, on the debate on the resolution about forming these organizations in permanent coalition with these other groups, the first three people with the permission of the body that Trumpka called on were uh, Kim Bobo, who is the director of Interfaith Worker Justice, not a delegate to the convention, not a union member, but sort of a, a church group that's supportive of unions, and an academic, and uh, Terry O'Neill, who was the president of the National Organization for Women, speaking from the floor of the AFL-CIO convention, saying, Yes, there's a war on women, but it goes beyond uh, the assault on reproductive rights. Two-thirds of the minimum wage workers in the United States are women, and we need to work with you on a permanent basis. So it's change. It's not revolutionary change, but it's substantial change, and it's overdue and necessary change. So one of the things that has been a big coalition builder in L.A. in particular, but also nationally, is this bid for immigration reform. You've got church leaders, immigrant rights advocates, labor and business, and Republicans. There was just a press conference today with the state, le state legislative Republicans calling for immigration reform. Got this big coalition, and yet it looks like it's not going to pass. It's not going to happen. So I wonder what you think that means for this whole notion of coalition building. And maybe you disagree. Maybe you're more optimistic. No, but well, no, given I, your girlfriend's assessment, I, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I mean, the problem is the House Republicans, and uh, that's not a question of the strength or lack of strength of the liberal coalition. That's a question of the Republicans uh, moving to the right of anywhere they've ever been and of uh, their ability in many state legislatures to uh, create very safe Republican districts and very white Republican districts uh, after the 2010 census. So I don't, I don't think that's really a test of uh, either the labor theory of change or of, uh, broadly speaking, uh, the liberal or the liberal centrist uh, coalition in America. That's just the problem of 
the House Republicans. Do you think there is any existing test to see whether or not this coalition works? Is there anything we should be watching for right now? The coalition works all the time uh, in ways that help unions and in ways that are pretty uh, irrelevant. Uh, uh, the ability of Democrats to win elections uh, is, is partly the result of two particular kinds of activities that unions do at election time. One, uh, really increase minority turnout, uh, working in uh, black and Latino neighborhoods in particular. The California Labor Federation, actually, which is a very sophisticated group, it's the California AFL-CIO, uh, actually, I think, did the one serious targeting of Asian voters in California in this last election. And according to the exit polls, Asian voters voted for Obama at a rather remarkable 79% rate in this state. Uh, this is not targeting limited to their own members. This is just targeting to the electorate in general. And there's also the most remarkable program the AFL-CIO itself has is a program called Working America. This was begun uh, about 10 years ago in some swing states. Uh, generally, unions do a pretty decent job of getting a much higher percentage of their white male members to vote Democratic than if, if they didn't belong to unions. Uh, if you're a black single female, the odds are if you vote, you're going to vote, 97% of you are going to vote Democratic. And if you're in unions, it's 98% of you. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Uh, among white males, and this is in the exit polling back to the birth of exit polling in the 1960s, there can be a 30-point difference between how a white male votes if he is in a union or if he's not in a union, and to a lesser degree, white women as well. Uh, and so the unions used Working America to do community organizing. They did door-to-door -door targeting in white working-class neighborhoods and enrolled them in a program which had no dues. They just sort of exposed these folks to the political program of, uh, of, of the AFL-CIO. And this is a reason. I mean, they had a million uh, members in the state of Ohio. This is one reason the Democrats have carried Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin in, uh, in, in recent, the last two uh, presidential elections. Now they want to expand this to see if it can generate some workplace organizing and some specific uh, worker victories. They've, they've got quite an organization in New Mexico, a state where cities and counties can raise the minimum wage and they've used this to get a raise in the minimum wage in Albuquerque and some surrounding counties. They're still trying to figure out how to uh, sort of spin this off into, again, workplace, uh, workplace uh, uh, context. But here again, you have unions doing substantial organizing, which costs a lot of bucks, and they're not getting any dues money in return. But they are getting a Democratic president uh, and uh, more Democratic members of Congress as a result. So who can't do anything against the Republicans. Uh, no, no. Doesn't but I mean, sound like but, but a good it's investment. Not, but it's not just labor. I mean, it's not like feminists, environmentalists, uh, uh, immigrant advocates, civil rights advocates are getting anything out of Congress either. This True. is not a unique labor problem at the moment. It's, it's a problem for the entire broad center-left uh, uh, coalition in, in America. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to the class warfare question for a second, and, and maybe this is the, the very question about left or, or right. There was this perception, I think, at least, uh, at least in the media, maybe you'll argue that it's only the mainstream media, a couple years ago with Scott Walker and all these other things that people were quite anti-union. And now we hear all this talk about the 1% and the difference between the top. Um, do you think the pendulum has swung again? Well, I don't think the pendulum swings radically in what happens in Wisconsin or in Zuccotti Park in Manhattan, where Occupy Wall Street uh, uh, was occupying, uh, are, are illustrative of, of different trends in uh, uh, public, uh, public opinion. Uh, the Gallup, Gallup polls every, uh, every year on uh, do you think unions are a good idea, uh, the low point uh, was 2009. Uh, uh, a lot of that had to do with the bailout of the auto industry, uh, the perception that auto workers were making 
close to 100 bucks an hour, which they're not, the utter inability of the UAW leadership, which once had been the greatest you know, progressive leadership in, 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 a, in the United States, but it's declined steadily over the decades, to uh, answer any of this. And uh, in 2009, for the first time, the percentage of Americans who generally thought unions were positive fell beneath 50%. Now, it's inched up incrementally every year since then, so it's at about 55%. Now, but keep in mind, particularly for young people, where would they encounter a union? Uh, where, where, where do you find a union uh, these days? Most, um, it, it's, 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 you know, a foreign body to most, uh, most Americans. Um, your image of unions could be from the turn of the 20th century with the, the photos of the garment workers holding signs in different languages. It could be the goons and on the waterfront. Uh, you know, right now, the, the most heavily unionized profession in the United States isn't the guys on the waterfront, isn't uh, uh, Jimmy Hoffa's Teamsters, it's teachers. Uh, uh, unions like the workforce have become feminized, have become multiracial. One of the interesting things about the AFL-CIO convention AFL-CIO conventions are just, uh, you know, just the top leaders of all the different unions. It's not rank and file. So these are the last institu institutions to reflect demographic change. But half the delegates at this convention for the first time uh, were uh, women or minorities. And the largest union in the AFL-CIO, AFSCME, uh, state and county municipal employees, headed by a black man, the second largest union in the AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Teachers, is headed by a Jewish lesbian. And the uh, person who was elected to one of the three elective national offices of the AFL-CIO, there's president, secretary, treasurer, and executive vice president. The executive vice president, remarkable guy, uh, Teferi Gabari, uh, uh, born and raised in Ethiopia, fled the Ethiopian Civil War when he was 14, managed to come to America when he was 15, uh, came to LA, was a track star at Cal Poly Pomona, uh, worked for uh, various unions, was the head of the Orange County Central Labor Council, and uh, this is the guy who has a nice African lilt who was just elected uh, executive vice president of the AFL-CIO two days ago. So uh, there are changes here uh, that at long last reflect uh, the changes in the workforce. But again, you know, your the popular image of, of labor is, is probably, uh, not that there still aren't, you know, the usual all white guys, although they don't smoke cigars anymore in public, uh, at <laughs> AFL-CIO conventions, but there are fewer and fewer of them. Uh, but that remains the dominant image to the extent that people have an image at all. Um, you're an 18-year-old kid growing up in an... Uh, a middle-class community uh, in most of the country, and there are no unions to speak of in the South or Southwest or the prairie states or the mountain states. Where would you ever have a first-hand uh, encounter with a union? So that, that, that's a problem, too. Well, the public sector, and you can, your encounter with the public union is somebody from DWP telling you, you know, it'll take six hours to yeah. answer your phone call or whatever, whatever the, yeah. or, or, and you talked about teachers' unions. I mean, teachers' unions have come under really harsh criticism for blocking all kinds of reforms that people will say is meant to improve education for poor black Latino students. With very little data to back up those claims, I might add. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, whatever is the most powerful union in a given period is likely to be demonized. Sometimes the demonization is justified. God knows Hoffa's Teamsters were a pretty violent bunch and a pretty corrupt <laughs> bunch and in bed in many parts of the country, but not all, uh, with, uh, uh, with organized crime. But uh, uh, the war on unions uh, continues, uh, you know, in some ways past the point where they almost uh, don't exist, uh, you know, and, and when a unionization campaign is, is waged, uh, anti-union consultants, uh, which is a big industry, we can keep your company union free, anti-union consultants, uh, you know, always dredge up, uh, you know, photographs of labor violence and, and, and what have you. They don't have any photographs in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, but a photograph is a photograph, and, uh, you know, there they go. Before we open it up for questions, I just want to ask you about Jerry Brown. You talked about the minimum wage, but he's also been pretty willing to um, 
piss off unions and conversations about uh, pensions and sort of how he's talked about things. What do you make of him? What's his? And he's been around for a long time. He has. Unions go up and down. He has. This is the guy who uh, signed the first bill, which gave farm worker collective bargaining rights, uh, farm workers collective bargaining rights, in 1975, and appointed three justices to the California Supreme Court, who all had a background helping farm labor: Rose Bird, Joe Groden and Cruz Reynoso, who were all unseated uh, uh, in a 1986 election, which I, you know, I, I will confess, I was actually, this is before I became a journalist, uh, I was the uh, uh, campaign manager for all three, and uh, this was rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and after this experience I said, well, maybe I should be a journalist. Uh, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Brown, I mean, what, 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 what's interesting about Jerry Brown is that this is really illustrative of most Democratic officials at the state and local <coughs> level. Uh, they all have horrific budget crunches. Uh, they all have issues down the line, and in some cases not down the line, of, uh, of public pensions. But there's also this. Uh, public sector workers have largely been able to maintain what was once standard in the private sector, the defined benefit pension, uh, the, you know, things like that, uh, and levels of job security uh, that were modeled after what was common in the private sector in the 1950s and 60s when public sector unions got going. Uh, and then, uh, because they are not subject to uh, the same uh, kinds of purely American capitalistic pressure that uh, the private sector has gone through, willy-nilly, you have taxpayers without defined benefit pensions paying taxes into a government which has got workers who will have defined benefit pensions when they retire. And everyone in labor understands that this is a <coughs> unstable and you know, it's a phenomenon that can't keep going on. And when it's a crisis for the public sector unions that they now have things which no one in the private sector does. And that's what gives a Scott Walker, uh, not to mention various Democratic elected officials, uh, some confidence that they, can, that they can go after this. If workers in the private sector still had the benefits that workers in the public sector do, this wouldn't be the issue that it is. My name is Joel Hahn. Uh, my question to you is this. Uh, I think that labor unions have done a lousy job of informing the new members as to their achievements. I was a teacher, and the new teachers knew little of what, where the benefits came from. They thought the school district gave them money, gave them benefits. They didn't give them anything. Two strikes got it. And I think the unions do a terrible job informing new teachers as to, teachers as an example, any kind of worker, as to how effective they've been in the past. And maybe that's one reason why there's no identity with many people identifying with the unions because they just think that the district, in this case, gave them these benefits, which they did not. Thanks. I, I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> Was there any discussion during the uh, convention um, <clears throat> about reaching out to freelance workers uh, in the white collar um, not so much in terms of collective bargaining, but in terms of legislative action. For example, as a freelance person, I, ha I, you know, I can't pay into unemployment. And if I want to pay into Social Security, I have to pay all of it myself rather than an employer paying half of it. So are unions actively thinking in that arena of organizing freelance workers? Unions that <clears throat> do this kind of organizing think sectorally. So the communication workers have done uh, work on behalf of uh, some freelancers in, in high tech. Uh, there is a freelancers union for writers, which mysteriously enough is affiliated with the United Auto Workers. Uh, but you know, so many Americans now are consultants, are freelancers, and uh, for the vast majority, it, it, I think it's still hard for unions to <clears throat> come up with you know, an omnibus program, except that you know, they're for things like universal health care, which affects freelancers more than it does employees who get their uh, benefits on the job. Uh, 
Uh, I, I think they would say that our support for or universal health care, we were there for Medicare, we wanted a better deal on Obamacare than what was there, but we were there for that as the best thing we could get, that that is our approach to freelancers generally. Do you think unions could learn something from the LGBT movement? Not so much in terms of the, uh, you know, the fight for economic issues, income inequality, wages, and so on, but for you know, uh, a group of people who seem to have been sort of dealt big blows and in a short time was able to reverse that legislatively. You know, the president of SEIU, Mary Kay Henry, uh, who is an, also a, a publicly acknowledged lesbian, who said to me that you know they, they around around SEIU her union which is in many ways one of the most dynamic and important unions in the country they've they've studying uh, I mean they, they actually commissioned a study on on how the LGBT community uh, basically has achieved uh, such rapid gains uh, relative to you know other other movements uh, no they're 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 uh, some unions are quite cognizant of this I got to say. One of the things that, you know, I mean, uh, one of the things that I found kind of fun at the AFL-CIO convention, uh, you have, you know, a few leaders of the old building trades who really do look like uh, they're out of the old school. And, you know, a couple of them were on resolutions committees and were reporting resolutions out to uh, uh, the body. And, uh, you know, they were referring to equality for a range of folks, including, as they, they said, you know, LBGTQ, they added Q to it, uh, uh, workers. And I was just sitting there wondering if they even knew what the hell they were talking about. Uh, uh, so, you know, I mean, this, this, this proceeds slowly, but there are a lot of people in the better unions who uh, are very impressed by the su relative successes of uh, the gay and lesbian community uh, moving towards uh, civic equality. And you know, can I just interject? Do you think that uh, unions had any real role? I mean, that's a quote-unquote movement of the left that unions didn't really have such a a major part in. No, uh, I don't think unions had a major part in that. I don't think unions have a major part uh, on the whole in uh, reproductive rights uh, uh, fights, for instance. But, and you know, y you can imagine a union member saying, look, I'm in this union to... Uh, better my economic condition, and we should uh, support candidates who do that. I'm not in this movement uh, if to have you take a position on, on, on questions like that. But by the same token, uh, you know, unions and Planned Parenthood uh, have at various times in election time carved up which precinct are you walking mm -hmm. for the same candidate. Uh, you walk the more upper middle class precincts, we'll walk the more working class precincts. So there's a synergy there, if not at the level of direct campaigning for, for the issue as such. Giovanni Cucchiaro. Uh, I have to premise that I'm not American, I'm Italian, so I don't know much about the history here in America. But uh, I'm wondering why the uh, unions, I wonder if they ever thought about that, uh, or if they tried to do it, and never created their own party. You say that they've been supporting the Democratic Party historically, but I don't think they get, they got much back from them. They would like to create their own party, and uh, there have been various times where they studied it and came close, and uh, uh, I could recite innumerable instances where this has been talked about. But, you know, American elections are winner-take-all uh, elections. There's no proportional representation. There's no parliamentary system. And uh, they have been pretty much locked in uh, to this two-party structure. You run a third candidate, and you have the effect of splitting the center-left vote and simply electing a, uh, a, a Republican. Um, and this has daunted them uh, uh, for decades. I mean, there's no question that they regard many Democratic elected officials as, uh, you know, somewhere between bad and worse. Uh, but they feel really locked in by the logic of, 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 the electoral, of the electoral system. And it's worse than that, because in order to get, let's say, uh, a majority in the House or 60 votes in the Senate, uh, you know, do they support uh, uh, candidates who really aren't that good because you want to get to that majority anyway? 
So that's a trap. I mean, occasionally they'll go against a Democratic incumbent who's really awful. Uh, they uh, uh, backed a primary candidacy against uh, uh, the Democratic senator from Arkansas back in uh, 2010, Blanche Lincoln. Uh, they almost ousted her in the primary. Uh, they have never gotten a Democrat from Arkansas to vote for labor law reform, going back to 1964. The Arkansas Dems always, always uh, uh, flake on them. I'm, I'm not referring to the Clintons. I'm referring to the actual senators. Uh, but uh, uh, they, they feel kind of trapped by the electoral system. The best example, counterexample, in uh, the state of New York, there is a, a, a party called the Working Families Party. Now, in New York, parties can cross-nominate. The Working Families Party can endorse uh, a, a, you know, the same candidate whom the Democrats endorse. And they have a line on the ballot. Uh, they are people who really do well at election time. They actually do walk precincts. They do make phone calls. They do turn out a, a vote. And uh, they've had the effect of pushing some of the Democrats to the left by virtue of having a separate party in New York. But most states' constitutions don't allow for this kind of arrangement. You said that there was a war on the working on, on unions. Um, you can almost substitute unions for the working class, right? Because there's been kind of that war against the working class since Ronald Reagan. Um, but why haven't the Democratic Party really embraced car check neutrality and put that into motion? The Democratic Party is the party that almost embraces it. Uh, <laughs> it, it passed in the House in 2009, but they couldn't get more than about 56, 57 votes in the Senate, so they didn't. Uh, uh, they didn't bring it up. That's because some of the Democratic senators were from Arkansas. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it would be what car check neutrality is uh, is uh, an alternate way of getting a union recognized at a uh, at an employer at a company. In, instead of going through an election and during the election time, managers can call in workers and say, you know, if you vote, if the union comes in, we're closing this plant and. Uh, uh, moving to, uh, you know, Shanghai, uh, uh, or, you know, we're watching you. Uh, we don't like this activity. We're, we're going to can you if, uh, uh, if uh, we, we see you working for the union. And, and the number of workers fired during an organizing drive, which is one out of 200 uh, in 1950, by about 1990 was nine out of 200. That's a big jump and a big difference. Uh, but there's a way to avoid the election. It's the way unions are recognized in Canada, which has a substantially higher rate of unionization than the United States. That is, if a majority of workers simply sign affiliation cards, if the company accepts that, um, uh, that would uh, um, avoid the election. And card check legislation simply says this is a legal way to uh, recognize a union even if the company doesn't uh, accept that. Uh, the Democrats have brought that up, uh, as I said, versions of this, uh, in this case, since the late 70s during Carter, Clinton, and Obama, and they could never get it uh, past a 60-vote threshold in the Senate. As somebody who's done quite a bit of union organizing, I have a question for you. I think you've done a good job of describing what the problem is that union organizers face. I'd like to hear what you think might be the solution. If I knew what the solution was, I would, uh, I, I would probably, uh, you know, have been pushing it on the FLCIO in this last convention. Changing the law is, uh, is, is really uh, indispensable because right now uh, you organize a union at the risk of your own job. Uh, and it's a, it's a really serious problem. You know, I mean, there are other countries that... Uh, are subject to the same macro pressures that the American economy is, but have maintained uh, a much higher rate of unionization and uh, um, haven't experienced the wage declines that we have. But it's usually a result of the laws in those countries. Uh, Germany, uh, in Germany, uh, if you have 50 workers in your company, you have a works council which meets regularly, a group of workers and managers who uh, discuss and resolve a range of issues by joint agreement. It doesn't include wages, but it includes a lot of other things. If you have a 1,000 employees in Germany, uh, uh, you are required by law to have an equal number of worker and management representatives on your corporate board. Well, that really changes things. I mean, if you wonder why Germany 
is retained, uh, uh, you know, even though German workers in manufacturing make one third more than American workers, uh, you know, they've not been wiped out by China. In fact, they're selling to China. They're selling everywhere. Part of this is the convenience for them of the euro, but that doesn't explain their ability to export outside of the, uh, outside of the eurozone. Um, and uh, it, it has enabled them to retain a lot of, uh, of high-value uh, jobs. The CEO from management, by the way, gets to cast a tie-breaking vote, except at Volkswagen, which, because it was founded by Adolf Hitler, is under more <laughs> worker-friendly uh, uh, legislation than that. But it, 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 it's, it's a matter of law, really, uh, and unions have not been able uh, to change the law. That said, there are smart ways to organize, there are dumb ways to organize. Most of the unions by now that still organize, and most of them have given up, but the ones that still organize and still commit real financial resources and real human resources to organizing pretty much know how to do it, but they don't know how to overcome uh, you know, the weaknesses in, uh, in labor law. And you know, even if you guys win the election, if the union wins the election, a company doesn't have to sit down and agree to a contract. The labor law reform legislation that was around in, uh, uh, in 2009 not only allowed for card check, but it, it said if the company doesn't, uh, you know, if no first contract is agreed to after whatever it is, nine months, a year, uh, and, uh, a mediator uh, comes in and uh, comes up with a contract. <coughs> That wasn't too popular with business either, and uh, uh, yet another reason why they couldn't break the filibuster in the Senate. My name is Anne Mossbergen, and um, I have three thoughts from listening to what you had to say. One is that the Democratic Party is not really supportive of unions or is having a hard time getting it, but my guess is that they want to be the 1%. And this is a good way for them to be nice so they can be on these board of directors. And so they have lost their um, idealism that they originally started, which was being part of the unions. Secondly, the unions haven't done a good job of maybe organizing or maybe in their corporate structure. They have some dumb people up there, and it just goes that way. Thirdly, they have, because of that, and somebody mentioned it earlier, because they haven't quite educated people of what the unions have done, the 40-hour work week, the whole, all of that, people don't, you know, people think, oh, it's, the government gave it to me. So my question is, I know you discussed the fact that we need to change the law. And somebody mentioned about the unions starting a political party. Why can't the unions consider maybe starting a political party in a certain targeted area, maybe a city, like the Green Party? They start little, and then in Germany they're in the, uh, you know, in the, the parliament. Why couldn't they have started this and give the Democrats a run for the money? Because the, the Republicans are not going to sign up. For Germany has a proportional representation parliamentary system. Uh, we don't, uh, uh, which is why we really only have two parties uh, in, our, in our legislatures and in, uh, in, in Congress. Uh, more broadly, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you know, no one is more frustrated with the current state of affairs than the people, both smart and dumb, uh, who uh, are, are the union activists and the union leaders. I mean, they, they know they've been taking it in the chops. And they know the price for this. The price for this uh, is an economy in which, uh, during the recovery of the last four years, um, more than 100% of the gains in productivity have gone to the top 5%. Uh, and uh, you know, the other 95% has actually lost uh, their share. Uh, they, they know that uh, you know, there used to be something called Bowley's Law which basically said that labor's share of the national economy remains relatively constant. It's a little over 50%. Right now it's at 43%, so much for Bowley's Law. Uh, corporate uh, profits are at a record high as a percentage of the gross domestic product, which is to say the national economy. Wages at a record low. They know they're getting, they, they, they know they're getting clobbered and they know the American people are getting clobbered as a result. And that's, well, that's why they're doing this reaching out 
uh, to uh, a workforce, not the entire freelance workforce. They don't know how to do that, uh, except by backing universal legislation, uh, which they are the biggest sponsors of. I mean, you know, you look at who lobbied most for Medicare in 1965, it was the unions. Uh, you look at who has been the constant pressure for creating universal health care over the last 10 years. It's been the unions. They have their own divisions as to what we accept, what we don't accept in the, in the halfway house, compromise measures. Uh, but they know they, they, they know they do not have critical mass that they used to have uh, to get the gains that help create uh, a, a broadly middle class society. Uh, that's why they're reaching out. They don't know really where, uh, where all this is headed. They certainly don't know what is the best course of action, but at least, particularly over the last year and year or two, uh, they're willing to try things that they've never tried before. Desperation can be a mother of invention, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing right now in the American labor movement. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. Thank you, Harold.